Hello. Welcome back to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. My name is Thomas Valentine. I'm really excited about this episode because it's our very first original production. I had the opportunity to attend the Regional Buddhist Recovery Summit at East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland. And I just have to say, it's a really magical place, full of fabulous people who make that center happen. So next time you're in the Bay, be sure to check out East Bay Meditation Center. We've recorded one of the panel discussions from the summit, and we'd like to share it with you. The panel discussion is quite long, so it'll be split up into two parts. So if you're listening to this podcast for the very first time, be sure to find the subscribe button and click it to be notified when the second part is released. So stay tuned after the panel discussion for information about the upcoming International Buddhist Recovery Summit in September. The panel starts off with a meditation by Vimalasara. We'll do a, a short sit, just arriving. So becoming aware of your body. Do a practice of coming home to your body. And just notice the experience in the body when I say coming home to the body. For some of you, there may have been some tension, some unpleasantness arising in the body, and just welcome it all. So I invite you to come home to your body in your own way by just noticing what the body is touching. This is what we mean by becoming aware of the body. Noticing what the body is touching. So for example, your feet will be touching the socks and you will also experience the pressure of the floor. For example, you will feel the pressure of the seat upon your sitting bones. And if you investigate even more, you would feel the contact of the clothing upon your sitting bones. So just taking a couple of minutes in your own way of coming home to the body. And if you notice your mind distracted, Fantastic, well done, that's the practice. You're half awake when you notice it's distracted and you can become fully awake by bringing it back to the body.
Now, if you're able to, placing a hand upon your heart. And as you breathe into your heart, just notice this hand of kindness upon your heart. And as you breathe in, have the sense of breathing in kindness towards yourself. And as you breathe out, breathing that kindness throughout the whole body. Now, as best you can, I want you to feel what it feels like as the kindness is being breathed into your body and breathed out through your body. So rather than thinking, I am breathing in kindness into my body, I'm breathing out kindness into my body. This is great, but let's see if you can take the practice one bit deeper by really experiencing what it feels like for you breathing in kindness. And you may be astonished that there may be some unpleasantness, some resistance. That is totally okay. Welcome it. It's there. What is unwanted will persist. So welcome it. There's nothing to change. It will change on its own. So breathing in kindness and breathing out kindness throughout the whole body. And when you're ready, you can release the hand from your heart in your own time. And in the words of the 12th century Buddhist teacher, Dogen, body like mountain. Just as a mountain is firm and present, allow your body to be firm and present. Heart like ocean. Just as the waves in an ocean arise and cease. Allow your feelings and thoughts to arise and cease. Mind like sky. Just as the sky is wide and open, allow your mind to be wide and open too. Breath like anchor. Just as an anchor steadies a boat, allow your breath to steady the body, to steady the heart-mind.
and see if you can let go of tension in the body and taking a deep breath in and expanding the breathing throughout the whole body. And as best you can, being present to this breath, this gift of this breath, having gratitude for this thing called breathing. We think we are doing the breathing, but the body is breathing us. There's nothing for us to do. The body will breathe us. So having that gratitude of the breath coming home to your body with the breath, the healing is coming back to the body and the breath. And I know that can be difficult for some people. And so if you're not ready to come back fully home to the body and the breath, that's okay. Just, but just put your foot in the doorway. Just perhaps put the key in the lock. You don't have to fully arrive if it doesn't feel comfortable or safe for you right now. So all of us taking a deep breath together, breathing out. It's that beautiful that we just all breathe the same breath and breathe out into the same universe. We are interconnected. May our recovery support each other in this room. May all blessings be yours. May all gods protect you. By the power of all Buddhas, may all happiness be yours. May all blessings be yours. May all goddesses protect you. By the power of all teachings, may all happiness be yours. May all blessings be yours. May all ancestors protect you. By the power of all spiritual communities, may all happiness be yours. And as by magic, Walt appeared. <laughs> yeah, welcome back. Uh, thanks for coming back after lunch. I was a little worried we'd lose a lot of people, but looks looks like a lot of people came back, so I appreciate that. The um, afternoon panel... We have some, some of the same people and some new people. So we'll do the same format to start where we each have five minutes. Each of the panelists will take five minutes to introduce themselves, talk a little bit about their uh, work they do, especially around working with uh, 
people in the recovery addiction world. And then, uh, and then also we're looking ahead. So the, the afternoon panel is a little bit about the future, looking ahead. Um, what could we do to, in terms of Buddhist recovery in particular, what, what can we do to contribute to uh, both improving our own programs, contributing more to society in terms of working with addiction and uh, the uh, collateral damage around addiction. So I um, guess we'll just go ahead and start with the uh, introductions. So, and uh, if you don't mind, Carol, can you start? Thank you. <clears throat> My name is Carol, uh, and I'm one of the, uh, I would say, elected, first-time elected core teachers at EBMC. So we now have an election process for that, and it's shared by other teachers, five other teachers. Um, I've been on the board here, and uh, I'm also part of Spirit Rock's retreat teachers training, and been many, um, years on this path since I was 19. And my lineage is Theravada. So um, I work as an assistant director in one of the oldest social rehabs in San Francisco um, for mental health. And you know, as many of you may know, the crisis is really, um, it's prevalent, um, homeless addiction and mental health. And um, some of us are working tiredly um, with this epidemic that's happening in our own city. Um, so I come from a very harm reduction approach, having had spent most of my, um, I guess, early years of training working with HIV and AIDS and mental health. So, you know, we found, a lot of my colleagues found that um, relapse was very high with this population and um, and especially underserved population in San Francisco. AA just didn't work for them. And so I, I and another um, co-creator of a cross-cultural intervention to addiction to help those groups that we felt were slipping through our programs and um, we've written and um, taught a lot and trained a lot around cross-cultural approach to addiction for those underrepresented that were falling through the system. So um, I myself consider myself recovered from heroin addiction. I am not a poly-substance user, so for me I can have a glass of wine or whatever um, but there's, um, I have a very different approach from that since I started my own recovery path, which was um, really based on the Dharma and very much on harm reduction, harm reduction based on the Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Paths. So even though, um, you know, my learning what polysubstance um, really is versus just being addicted to one drug, um, it was quite, you know, an experience in itself. Um, I worked in methadone as well. So 
um, and with um, um, the former medical director of the state of California and co-occurring disorders to look at the epidemic of, of heroin addiction and opiates and the overuse of methadone. So um, I pretty much spent my career doing this as I was kind of healing myself going through the Dharma. That's me. Oh, last thing I'll say, I come from a Native American background, so the Red Road is very much integrated in with the Buddhist practices. Thank you. Got it. Okay, thanks. All right. I'm going to stand because I'm short and I can't see y'all. So, hey. Yes, I can do that too. All right. I'm Jean Teller. I'm the executive director of Refuge Recovery, the nonprofit. Uh, we support, um, I think as of this morning, about 675 meetings around the world um, using um, the, uh, we're a Buddhist inspired organization. We are not explicitly Buddhist, but. Uh, if you hung out at one of our meetings, do we have people here that have hung out at one of our meetings, at a refuge meeting? Hey, people. All right. Yes. Um, we uh, um, Basically, we are highly derivative of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So if you've spent any time with the Satipatthana Sutta, then you're probably going to feel right at home with uh, refuge recovery. Um, Let's see. I personally am, um, I think, uh, 32 and a half years sober. Uh, I got sober through 12-step. Um, I, I didn't really worry about the language. I just was, I just got sober. You know, I was like, I liked the little sayings. That's what I did. <laughs> I was, uh, I think I was, uh, it took me until I was 11 years sober to do my fourth step, so you might consider me a late bloomer. Um, it, uh, I don't, don't try that at home. Um, and um, I started serious Dharma practice about 10 years ago. I was a member of the Against the Stream community, and um, uh, maybe some of you were as well. Um, and... Uh, uh, gone on numerous retreats and things like that. Um, you know, studied pretty serious student of Dharma, I'd say. Um, and up until September, um, I was a Medicaid policy analyst working with state governments. So, so actually, this is the first time I've done anything explicitly that is sort of organized. Uh, work in the recovery universe, so um, it's an opportunity to be of service uh, to the to folks, and I'm delighted to be here. And um, uh, I'll just say through the troubles that we've had in refuge recovery of the last 11 months, I've uh, had the opportunity to get to know Vim Lasara, which has been um, quite a quite a blessing. So, you know, bows to you. Thank you. Um, so that's what I got. Thank you. Thanks. <clears throat> Hi, <clears throat> my name is Stephen Tierney. I uh, ordained at the San Francisco Zen Center a number of years ago. I've been practicing about 28 years. Um, and then was Shuso, as Laura mentioned this morning, which is how we get certified to teach. 
Um, but I, um, like others who spoke this morning, I found my way to Buddhism 28 years ago, um, and I found my way to recovery 23 years ago, um, and I was a coke addict. So um, I owe four years of amends to whoever sat next to me in meditation halls. So if you were, <laughs> if you were there, I apologize for what was going on. Um, so in my professional life, I'm a psychotherapist, and I teach, train new psychotherapists at a place called CIS that some of you have heard of. Um, but I retired officially in July, so now I have time to come here and, and do other stuff and to travel. Um, <clears throat> for me, um, <clears throat> I, um, as other panelists have talked about, I, uh, we looked around um, in San Francisco, a friend and I who worked together, and realized that there were a lot of folks who were having trouble staying um, at the level of uh, abstinence or cleanness or sobriety or, or, or reducing compulsive behavior. Um, and so we started practicing um, and offering these workshops called mindfulness-based relapse prevention. Um, because, of course, you don't um, have a relapse because you picked up a drink. Um, you pick up a drink because you've had a relapse. And it's our belief that if you go back through the cycle a little bit and bring mindful awareness, you can figure out where you could have sought help or made different decisions or, or um, stood more firmly and deeply in your, pra your two practices. Um, and so we've been doing that now in San Francisco and, and around the Bay Area for about 10 years. Um, my other professional interest um, and, and thing I've been working on for about 25 years is suicide intervention and prevention. Um, it seems to me, like Gabor Mate says, if you scratch um, an addict um, or an alcoholic, you will find someone dealing with untreated trauma. Um, and I add to that in, in the communities I work in, which is the recovery community as well as the LGBTQ community, um, you will also find untreated depression um, and huge amounts of generalized anxiety also undiagnosed and untreated. Um, and so what I think is that we need to speak um, we need to speak clearly, and we need to be present with each other, and when somebody seems sad or particularly wired, we need to ask them if they're okay, um, and in whatever way you can, hold them until they are, to acknowledge that, um, that we have something to do about that. And so all of my practice and my recovery um, comes from, I, uh, I went to a workshop years and years and years ago with Joan Halifax, who said when she first was introduced to Buddhism, what appealed to her was the possibility of a life led in peace and authenticity. Um, and I think that the two practices together give us the opportunity. When I went to my first 12-step meeting, people started talking about their lives, and I took this deep breath um, that we get taught to take in here, and we just did, and everything just relaxed. It was the first time I had heard people speak honestly. You know, I grew up as a little sissy gay boy in Detroit in the 1950s, picture that. Um, it wasn't safe, it wasn't um, welcoming, it wasn't whatever. Um, and so I always had at least two personas going on, and sometimes three or four. And I think that's true, Who, wherever you grew up and whoever you are, I think we found some survival personas. And so what we need to do through our twin practices is find a way back to that authentic place. Um, and I think we're doing that today, and I think in Buddhist recovery we do that. Um, and I think the combination of our spiritual practice and our 12-step programs give us a complete bridge um, back to ourselves. Thanks. So, hi, uh, I'm Vimala Sara, a.k.a. Valerie Mason-John. 
I'm the current president of the Buddhist Recovery Network, and I'm the co-founder of the Eight Step Recovery Program, and we have meetings in three continents. Uh, they're slowly growing. And I'm also the co-founder of a program called Mindfulness-Based Addiction Recovery. We actually wanted to focus on the recovery rather than on the relapse. We kind of thought that actually by having the word relapse, it was like uh, something quite negative about that. We know that relapse happens and relapse is part of the recovery, but we wanted to put more of the weight on the recovery. It's a very successful program. I have a, I've just uh, trained 120 workers from the state of Michigan on an online intensive mindfulness-based addiction recovery course. Um, I thought we were talking to the addiction crisis. That was so I'll, I'll, I'll speak to that, that when we were planning, we were talking about the addiction crisis. And for me, I thought I've always lived around an addiction crisis because in the 70s, I was around kids doing Evo stick, sniffing. I used to sniff shoe conditioner, actually. And this Evo stick glue sniffing was a real crisis. And then as I become an adolescent, it's um, heroin. And then as a young adult, it's crack. And then methadone. And now where I live, it's fentanyl. And I know that uh, the crisis is racked up because we know in 1991 when uh, medics started prescribing opioids, that's when there was an increase of deaths. Yeah, an increase of deaths. And then in 2010, there was another spike because it's like, okay, let's stop prescribing these opioids. And so people are turning to heroin and there's another spike. And then in 2013, we get the synthetic fentanyl and apparently in 2016, 20,000 people died of fentanyl. Where I live in Canada, Vancouver, downtown east side, everybody in Vancouver knows somebody who's been affected by fentanyl. You know, one of my closest friend, was, was she lucky? Her son is almost a cabbage. Yeah, yeah, you know, and People, many people have died. And for me, I've done a lot of work with Gabor Mate. Uh, he wrote the foreword to one of my books, but I'm very fortunate he invited several of us to work with him and to be trained up in his modality of compassionate inquiry. Because, as Gabor says, and we know that. Everybody who has addiction has experienced emotional trauma. Not everybody who has emotional trauma has experienced addiction. And I know for myself that actually I was a chronic relapser. I was walking along the road yesterday thinking, God, I saw therapists and they never spoke to me or inquired about the trauma that I had in my childhood, which is why it took so long to recover. Yeah. And yet, in, in the work that I do with Gabor, in half an hour, 
I can have somebody in front of me telling me they have a marijuana, a coke addiction, they have ADHD, and I can get there in half an hour and pinpoint where they got that ADHD from. It's not like it was genetic. It was due to an emotional trauma and it's an adaptation. And then as they get older to cope with the ADHD, they've turned to the drugs. So for me, how we begin to deal with this definitely is, a, it's for me, the way is harm reduction. My recovery was harm reduction. <laughs> there could have been no other way. I was a chronic relapse and I, it was harm reduction. So I'll end there. Thank you. I'm just <clears throat> feel like I've been talking a lot, but uh, that's what I do. So I will continue for a moment anyway. Um, I, I just want to comment on my appreciation for this array of approaches that we're getting to hear about today and how important I think that is. Um, sure, Kevin Griffin. Um, I, uh, one of the things that's been a f long frustration for me is that I've known and worked with people in all these different areas of recovery from going into treatment centers, uh, from working with Alan Marlat, who's the founder of mindfulness based relapse prevention, at least one of them. Um, and of course, in the Buddhist world and in the 12 step world. And then there's the research world, and my frustration has been that there's not a conversation among them all. As Tom said this morning, it's like everybody's fundamentalist. This is like my way, and I've got my way. And, you know, what we're hearing is that the different ways work for different people, and that's what I've always believed, that, you know, that the fact that AA worked for me doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody else. I'm, I'm not a, even an addiction professional. I don't really don't, I don't try to get people sober. That's not my work. You know, I'm, that's much too hard, frankly, you know, for me, I, I'm like, you take care of your stuff and then we can meditate together. You know, uh, that's, I can help you with that. Um, you know, because it's an incurable disease, right? I mean, it really is. And and when people point at the low success rate of various different things, whether it's AA or treatment centers or what, you know, I say, yeah, of course, there's a low success rate because it's incurable. I mean, uh, nobody's figured it out. Uh, it's It's... And so that's why I'm so happy that like the more approaches we have and the more cooperation we have amongst us, the better chance we have of helping people. You know, I, I, I don't think that any one of us, if one of us had the, the way, you know, we'd be the billionaire treatment person, you know, we'd be the Amazon of treatment and, uh, you know, and we don't. And, and so I think that having that humility and also the willingness to hear and listen, to, I mean, it frustrates me that, you know, a, a researcher tries to disprove theories of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's like, why you do, what is product, really productive about that? I, well, I, 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 
I, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, so uh, I'll just say that there's one research study I read that suggest that in which people were supposedly given alcohol and told that there wasn't alcohol in the drink and they didn't get drunk. And then they were given things that they were told had alcohol, but there wasn't, and they got drunk. And I'm like, really? Okay. That's great science. So, you know, I don't know why I brought that up, but it's just (laughs) pet peeve. Pet peeve. Thank you. You know, uh, so, so, you know, I, I don't do a lot of the things that I'm hearing people doing here, and I'm really happy that they're doing it, you know. Uh, so let's work together, in the immortal words of, uh, let's work together. Oh, I can't remember who wrote that, and I'm usually good with that. Hi, my, I'm right next yeah, to the microphone to the speaker, so it's a little tricky. Hi, my name is Augusta. I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. It's a privilege to be here today with the panel and to have heard the earlier panel and to get to be with all of you. I was ordained by the Venerable Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh in 2011. And in 2006, I started my practice of meditation. And more recently, I've been authorized to teach meditation through Spirit Rock. And I came into the Rooms of Recovery in Al-Anon also in 2011, in January, I received the brown jacket from Thai in, in the fall. And it was because of meditation and, quite honestly, because of Noah Levine that my eyes and heart were open to the possibility that the rooms, the 12-step rooms in recovery, could help me. That there was something more that I could do to heal the trauma that I experienced. My mom continues to drink in a way that I've been impacted and my dad is mentally ill. And that's a rough place to come from. And so I was talking to Watt a little bit over the weeks that preceded today. I don't know that I have a lot that I want to think about or contribute to the opioid epidemic, but the collateral damage, I like that you chose those words today, the collateral damage of that, I have a lot of experience. And so Walt and I were talking, well, is there a way that all of these amazing recovery programs that are being created that are based in Buddhism is a way that that can be more inclusive and welcoming to those of us who are caught in the collateral damage, those of us who have been impacted by someone else's addiction. And of course, I don't know the answer. None of us are experts, right? That's completely delusional to think that we're an expert. I have information and experience and strength and hope that I hope I can share. And for me, someone in the refuge recovery meeting this morning was talking about having to translate. And people were coming to the 12-step rooms and having to translate maybe God specifically, maybe some other terms. And for me, as someone who's been impacted by someone else's addiction, going into these wonderful recovery spaces that are rooted in Buddhism, which is super important in my life, I'm having to translate the word addict and the word addiction. And so I've been actively involved in Al-Anon for nine years, and I'm just recently, I think, really even coming to grips with the fact that I have a disease, that I've been affected by the family disease of alcoholism, and that it's uncurable, 
and that it could only be arrested by diligently working my program. And I I can't take a break from that. If I take a break from that, all the crazy comes back again. I'm I'm never going to be recovered. It's not like, oh, and there isn't even this piece of the step of like stopping to take, like don't take another drink or don't shoot up again. It's I have to interact with people, or I don't have to. I could go and live as a hermit in a cave and just forage. But I choose to live in a world where I'm interacting with people, and Al-Anon is often referred to as a disease of relationships. So how do we get to be in those relationships in a way that is mutually supportive and doesn't make the other person crazy or make me crazy? And then it's also called a disease of perception. And I, I love, I haven't heard Vimla Sar say this today, but I've heard her say the stinking thinking. And it's so easy to get addicted to the stinking thinking and to believe the thoughts that arise in my mind and not even recognize that they're perceptions and that there could be some deception. But to think, oh, well, you said da da da, and that means this. It can only mean this. And to forget that there's this whole other space. So, uh, of course, I don't have an answer to that wonderful question that Walt gave me of how can the Buddhist recovery programs be more inclusive of people who sit in my seat. And really what's come up for me is maybe bring, listen, sitting in the refuge recovery meeting today and practicing with Kevin years ago, some more inclusive language around addict, because it's so hard, even for me now, and certainly earlier on, to, to put that label on me Right now, the addict is the person that I'm suffering the consequences of that. And I, I might, there are many people in the rooms, some of our panelists earlier today, who identify as addicts themselves, and then there's this other part of them, the alanonic part, who's recovering from the effects of someone else's addictions, like how to navigate that language. I don't want to go into the Buddhist recovery rooms and have to do that translation. Addiction is easy, because I can, like, oh yeah, there's these addictions, but little asterisks of other ways to hold that word would help me personally. Just uh, firstly, in the um, addiction world and the medical world, actually the word addict um, is a word that we don't use anymore. Yeah, it's a word. And uh, I do agree that there's lots of a language in the addiction world that we do need to get rid of like I make a point of not using I cleaned up yeah because this you know it's like we're dirty clean so but definitely the word addict is something that's not being used I just wanted to speak to 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 something else it's we we can't be cured I think for me I look at it that my um dis-ease or disease goes into remission and that actually there's something about um, if I look at the Buddhist teachings and I look at that it's possible to wake up to the truth but we know that even when the prince woke up to the truth and became a Buddha Mara still visited the Buddha so Mara didn't disappear in fact it's said in uh, somewhere it's like Mara, I need you. Don't go away. I need you. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and Mara appeared even six months before the Buddha died. So, for me, what it is because I, I think there can be a, a hopelessness if we say it's not curable. I think for me that what the 
Buddhist teachings have done for me is a way to work with my uh, my disease so that actually there are things that arise but they don't have the same gravitational pull on me and sometimes things arise and I can just do nothing that's the liberation that's what the teachings have done and I also want to just to remember those people who have never gone to a meditation room or the rooms of Buddhism or been in a 12-step program but they've got recovery they they got recovery and there are those people I don't know how the hell they did it <laughs> but they did it so I just want to honor that too it's been interesting to listen to everybody um, so in refuge we actually don't talk about disease uh, and um, we I, I love that you brought up Mara you know because sometimes Mara is more present than other times but yeah we don't it's a causes and conditions right which is sort of a fundamental Buddhist uh, tenant and I can only say for me personally um, you know when I sort of engage in my sort of personal narrative that 12-step got me sober and and Buddhism gave me the life that I wanted you know and it was very freeing for me and I see this happen and to answer actually I think it was maybe you that had the question before lunch do people just get sober or just whatever figure it out in refuge yes we have many people that are they have only done refuge and they're doing really well you know so yes that is definitely possible um, but the uh, relinquishing the disease model has been huge I think for for many folks in refuge um, to kind of walk away from that or that like I'm in recovery or I'm gonna get recovered or I'm not ever or whatever you know it's just like we just sort of take that language out and we are people and we have things going on and we have to deal with those things and we have to deal with those things in a structured fashion to move through them. So very different take. So to sit together, right, 12-step, different kinds of Buddhist recovery. I will also say that we have refuge recovery meetings right now that use your book, 8-step recovery, very cheerfully. <laughs> so <laughs> it's happening. And I love that, right? You know, it's like, that's part of this, you know, is like this whole thing of like, let's not be so fastened on to like, it's this or it's that or it's whatnot, you know, it's like, there's so much that all of these recovery programs can learn from each other. And, and some of them are like, you know, refuge, nascent stages of development, really, right, you know, and so let's not lock the door on any, any one thing and say we are exclusively this. You know, so we have many people that go to 12-step meetings, they come to refuge, it's lovely, you know, so that's what we're hoping for. Um, yes, good, okay, you ready? Do it. <laughs> yeah, Walt told us we weren't answering that first question in the first go-around on this side, so so that's why we didn't address it. But but I think, um, as Vimal Sire said, I don't think 
Um, I, I feel terrible that people are um, dying of opioids and fentanyl poisoning, um, but I don't think we're in a new crisis. I think we've been in a drug crisis. Um, you know, the fact is, since the beginning of recorded time, people have used chemicals, including alcohol, um, for pain, for healing, um, and for pleasure. And we live in a country that's messed up on all three of those things at the moment. Um, but I do think one of the things that's important is that we, we talk a lot about that um, what we have going on with folks who have challenging relationships with alcohol, drugs, and, and certain behavioral addictions. Um, and what, what we know is that it's, it is often about isolation, and it is often about um, a, living in a country where it's okay for someone to be paid a salary of a billion, too, why children can't afford to eat lunch at school, and, and where racism and, and um, a lunatic in the in the front office um, have made it a country that's living in fear right now and depression, and living genuinely scared for reasons that we should all be scared, and hopefully activated for reasons that we should all be, but in the meantime isolated and made to feel alone. And so it is natural that people would turn to whatever it is that brings safety and comfort and healing, um, and our opportunity is to work with folks to figure out alternatives to that and figure out how to strengthen relationships that are more nurturing than that. Um, the one thing I would suggest is that um, we should all be mindful about um, making statements like, um, in the medical profession, we don't use the word addict anymore. Because um, first of all, that may be true in Canada. It's not true here. Um, but second of all, we all know many people in this room, if we went around right now and introduced ourselves, who would introduce themselves as an alcoholic or an addict or whatever. And I think that it would be great to change that to, I'm a person struggling to have a different relationship with substances. But in the meantime, for folks who feel really isolated and for folks who have never felt accepted or like they belong, to go to a meeting and sit in a room full of people who say, my name is Stephen and I'm an addict, um, was for many of us and continues to to be in 2019 for many people where they first feel connected and supported in that same path that they're trying to walk. So I appreciate that we're moving in the direction of finding healthier, um, more skillful language, um, but I think we want to be careful about denying that door to people who really need to feel connected. So that concludes the first part of the Regional Buddhist Recovery Summit panel. Again, be sure to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or Spotify or wherever you are listening from to be informed when the second part is released. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the upcoming International Buddhist Recovery Network Summit. It's taking place September 5th through the 8th at Gwynwood Conference Center in Lacey, Washington. The International Summit will be similar to the Regional Summit, but on a bigger scale. We aim to bring Buddhist recovery communities from around the world together to discuss current topics. In order to put this event on, we are currently raising funds to pay for the event and bring people in internationally. You can donate by going to BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash donate. 
Don't forget to check out the Buddhist Recovery Network Academy taking place next Sunday, March 3rd. To attend the live Dharma teaching, go to BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash academy to get the Zoom link. You can attend by your phone, you can attend by a laptop, tablet, whatever's most convenient for you. Hope to see you there.